morning, everyone. You're having fun this morning. Good. It should be. All right. Jesus is a fun God. All right. And we celebrate. We have joy in his presence and we celebrate his victory. And that idea of the victorious Christ who threw down the powers of sin and darkness and led us out into freedom and into victory is one of the things that I'm going to be looking at this morning. Um, We're going to be coming through looking at that um, and what he accomplished on the cross. But there's a a couple of bits that God stirred me just to uh, share beforehand that he was just speaking to me about over this weekend. Um, Because the Christian life is intended to be a victorious one and to be one where we celebrate and where we join Jesus Christ's victorious procession in life. It's also one where we run, and we run as a race, and we run wholeheartedly after Jesus. And God was speaking to me about what footwear are are we wearing when we run that race. And different ones of us might be feeling that we've been wearing different footwear over the last season. And he just spoke to me about a couple of those. Um, And uh, just listen, ask Holy Spirit just to speak to you now. Just open your hearts. Um, This might not be applicable to absolutely everyone, but I think there's something in it for everyone. And I think specifically that there's certain people here that God's really going to highlight this to. Um, So the first group with people that might be feeling like they're wearing Wellington boots, which is not typical running gear, is it? Okay, quite heavy. It's hard to get up a good speed wearing those. You don't see Usain Bolt running the 100 metres in Wellington boots, although I reckon he could still beat me in Wellington <laughs> And this, this has been a season where you feel that in actual fact you've needed to wear Wellington boots because you've been wading through a swamp where it's felt like there's just a constant drag backwards against you, either that's circumstances or that's opposition, where you feel like you want to be running, but you feel that all you've been doing is wading for a long time, and that you've just been slogging your way through the mud in your Wellington boots, feeling this is hard work, this is hard going. I don't feel like I'm running very fast at the moment. And God says to you that that season's going to be changing and that you're going to need to be changing. You're going to change your footwear to running shoes. Get ready to get your running shoes on, all right? Because that season will come to an end. And actual fact, God celebrates your perseverance during that previous season. He celebrates the hard work that you have put in wearing your welly boots, all right? Okay, you've just kept going, but you've kept going faithfully, all right? And it's felt a slog, but you've just kept wading, even when it's felt like it's hard going, all right? And that actually has trained you. Imagine how light and how easy it then feels when God says, actually, now is the season to run, all right? So get ready to put on your running shoes and get ready to go faster than you have gone before. Okay, next one. You've got your running shoes on, but your shoelaces are undone. And there's a risk that this might trip you up. Okay? That there's just certain things either in your life at the moment, either through um, kind of lack of consistency or uh, some poor personal habits, or even through sin in your life, that you're thinking, actually, these have a risk 
to trip you up in your race. And God does not want that for you. God wants you running completely unhindered. And he says, just very simply, just do up your shoelaces. Okay? But there's certain things, very specifically, they just think, actually, there's just one or two things. And it might not be anything completely major, but there are things where you're going, actually, this is a slight hindrance to me in terms of enjoying all the fullness that God has, in terms of running to my fastest, to the best of my ability, of doing all that I think God has got for me. And he says, just don't do that. Just tie up your shoelaces. Just make a decision to do that. And, and I think the, the particular emphasis that I think I wanted to bring on is that God is going to make this simple, as simple as tying up your shoes. Okay? That this isn't going to be a major task. Doing up your shoes once was a major task for me. Um, so, um, and I tell you with complete honesty that when I was in year three at school, I was let out from lessons five minutes earlier than the rest of the class at lunch break so that I could extra, have extra time in doing my shoes. I was considerably behind the curve in the shoe tying kind of department. Okay? At that time, it seemed a major task for me. I did not look forward to that. I, you know, I would concentrate, you know, the loop, swoop, pull, or the bunny ears, however you taught it. But anyway, it was a major, major struggle to overcome, whereas nowadays, most of the time, I do that relatively straightforwardly. <laughs> what looked like a difficult thing in the past is actually going to become relatively simple for you to overcome. Okay? And then the last group of people, I felt, uh, you feel like you're wearing snowshoes? And this is unusual. This is not footwear that is ordinary seen around Gravesend High Street. <laughs> and you're looking at other people who have got their trainers or their Doc Martens or their, their walking boots on. And you're looking around going, I, don't, I feel like I don't fit in. I, I, I feel like I stick out like a sore thumb. Like, God, what, what is this gifting that you have given me? What is, why have you made me like this? Why do I feel like I've got two tennis rackets strapped to my feet when everyone else is on running shoes? God says to you, if you're feeling like that, that there will come a season when this becomes apparently and abundantly clear why he has given you that gifting and that calling. Okay? Because that's in fact, the purpose of snowshoes, and I'll defer to my Canadian brother, um, uh, is that they allow you to walk over the surface of the snow, okay? that in fact in an environment where other people would sink, you will glide over the surface. All right? So if you're thinking there, sitting there thinking, why am I like this? You know, I haven't found my niche yet. God's saying that, that will be coming. Okay? So I'm just going to... It's all right. I'll pray for us in light of that, and then actually that we're going to carry on further looking at the victory that Jesus has brought for us. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that we, we run, we ran after you, and we are determined to run wholeheartedly with every gift that you have given us. Thank you for the unique characteristics and giftings of everyone in this room. And God, pray that whatever season we're in, thank you that you are equipping us to run for you. Amen. Looking this morning, actually, the title is The Passover and the Crucifixion. This is kind of a part three of three. So uh, I've been preaching Jesus through Exodus. We've done a series on Exodus. And the whole whole Bible points to Jesus. The Old Testament foreshadows and points towards him. The New Testament proclaims him and his impact and his victory on the world. 
And so um, the, we never get away from the centrality of Christ. We never should, we never need to. It's a very simple message in some ways. In some ways, we can explore this message for the depths of eternity. We will never get to the bottom of it. Okay? But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Very simply, that is our central message. At the heart of all that we are is the person of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. Okay? That is what defines us. That is what we gather around. That is the universal truth and passion that unites us. Okay? Looking at what Jesus accomplished on the cross is actually a very broad topic. Okay? can't be narrowed down to just one thing. Multiple examples. Um, I do highly recommend the book that I've just put up here. It's an old one, but I think you can still buy it secondhand on the online multinational retailer of your choice. Um, uh, but this lists 50 reasons that Jesus died on the cross, and it's actually a fairly short book to get through. Each reason is one or two pages. Um, and today I'm just focusing on a few things that Jesus did for us on the cross. But I hope that, you're not, uh, that you understand that I'm not claiming to describe all of what he accomplished there, that these are just some examples, but these are almost like an appetizer. Okay, and these actual fact just stimulate us to go even further. The actual fact this is for us to explore in our personal lives ever more. Uh, in a similar way, it's a bit like saying, "How do I know that Joe, my wife, loves me?" Uh, I can give some examples. So, for example, on Friday she bought us tickets to see some stand-up comedy. We went to see Stuart Francis in Gravesend. It was brilliant. We loved that together. And I can say, "I know that Joe loves me because she makes me bacon sandwiches." But I hope that you would understand that those are examples rather than saying that the entirety of our relationship is based on stand-up comedy and bacon. Although that, that's about 80% of it. <laughs> it's a heck of a basis for a relationship, I tell you. Uh, so in the same way, when I talk about what Jesus did on the cross, I'm giving examples that are just a small part of the entire scope of Christ's victory. Okay? And we've been looking at that, and we've been looking through Exodus, and we're going to draw the parallels between the Passover and the Last Supper and the crucifixion. So if you look at the story so far, um, and I've tackled some of this in my last couple of sermons, we've seen Moses saved out of the water, uh, drawn the parallel that both Moses and Jesus were born into a hostile environment with the intention of saving their people. We looked at Moses' early life, his life as a shepherd and the importance of being faithful in the small things and when no one else is watching before you take things on the road. It was Moses being called by God through the burning bush and then is sent to Egypt to set his people free. And Pharaoh refuses and God sends a series of plagues on Egypt. They've got the first one, the Nile turned to blood. And sometimes we can brush over the nature of these. We're quite familiar with them. The rest of us from our Sunday school days might even be able to list the plagues in order. In fact, it's pretty serious stuff, actually. And we mustn't downplay the significance of the judgment that was brought. And that this was actually a fairly apocalyptic scale events. Because sometimes we downplay it. We've got like... This I found, this is a colouring sheet of the ten plagues of Egypt. 
which we could use in our children's work. Here you go, colour in, ten plagues. It's nice, you could use your primary colours quite well, couldn't you? You've got, got the Nile turned to blood, that's red. Yeah, you got that in. Frogs are green. Lice, we could claim a yellow. Um, cattle, black and white, but with hints of red, because they're dying. Um, <laughs> and this goes right up to the death of the firstborn of Egypt. So if you look at Exodus 12, verse 12, it says... On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I'll just read that again. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. When we read this verse, it should make us stop and think. All right? In fact, if you read that verse on its own, out of context, and it doesn't make you very concerned, you might be a bit of a sociopath. (laughs) If the idea of suffering on a mass scale doesn't make you uneasy, you're either a dictator or a PE teacher. (laughs) All right, it's a similar mindset, it's just different scale of ambition there, all right? Okay. But fortunately, we don't read these out of context, do we? Okay. We need to ask ourselves, who were the plagues directed against? Who was the opposing power? Okay. Pharaoh. And Pharaoh symbolizes the powers of darkness and oppression because he was in utter opposition to God. Because okay. in Egyptian culture and religion, Pharaoh was revered as a god. He was a deity. Okay. The first nine plagues acted in direct defiance of other Egyptian gods. Um, Each time giving Pharaoh the opportunity to repent. In a previous sermon, I gave some of the details of how each plague specifically demonstrated God's superiority over the Egyptian deities. For example, uh, the Nile turning to blood. Uh, the Nile was represented as a god. Uh, there was Harpy, the god of the Nile in Egyptian culture. So when the god of Israel comes and turns that to blood, it is showing the actual fact that the Egyptian gods are powerless and that they, the influence they bring is stand up to nothing compared to the god of Israel. And the final plague demonstrated the powerless nature of the forces of darkness compared to the one true god. And Pharaoh was the representative of his people who were judged with him. Often God does deal with people through a representative. We're familiar with this in our own story. In Adam, when we all sinned, we all died. He was our representative. Fortunately, we have a greater representative. We have Jesus, in whom we all died and all live and all reign. So Pharaoh was the big baddie in the story, um, but was symbolizing just that sense of opposition to God's rule, the powers of sin and darkness that had kept his people, kept a people in captivity for generations, for hundreds of years. So we're going to look at this. So it's Exodus 12, that's 21 to 23. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, 
dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. This was actual blood painted around the doorway. Okay? Not red paint. Not grape juice. In actual fact, this was symbolic that the people of Israel understood that there needed to be a sacrifice for their own salvation. Okay? We'll carry on. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me which is interesting. I don't have time to dwell on that completely, but Pharaoh clearly recognized in actual fact that the people of this God had the capacity to be a huge blessing. And <clears throat> part of me just wonders, what would, have the nation of, what would the nation of Egypt have looked like had a couple of centuries before that they not enslaved the Israelites, but in actual fact welcomed them and made them part of the culture, and sought the blessing that they could have brought. In fact, the outcome here might have been very different. We don't know. That's hypothetical. It's just a thinking point. Okay. Verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. You would want these people out of your neighborhood, would you not? Yes. Yeah. Off you go. Off you go. Um, so the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. I just want you to try and imagine this, this scene from both viewpoints. Okay? The Israelites have been slaves for generations. Okay? There is no one alive amongst them that has ever known anything different. They've never known freedom. And now they are parading out of Egypt, past the people who had held them captive. And suddenly with new riches that they had never anticipated. And then imagine Pharaoh looking on. His power is completely broken. His status is shattered because his son would have been part of the supposed divine line. That would have carried on that rule. He was the, you know, in terms of the gods of Egypt, the power would have transferred down through the firstborn from Pharaoh down to his firstborn. This would have been the power, the reverence from the people that kept and continued. And that rule had been broken. Okay, because that symbol has been shattered. And the people who he had previously kept in slavery were now plundering his kingdom and journeying out into freedom. Look, what did the Passover and the Exodus achieve? 
So the summary. Well, the Israelites' lives were spared. And we mustn't kind of shy away from that, that they, you know, they needed that blood of the lamb around their doorposts so that when the angel of the Lord came through, it passed over them. It's a very literal name, the Passover festival. It's easy to get your head round in some ways. Okay. That there was a sacrifice that was needed. That God actually said, just on your own, okay, you can't handle this. I'm going to put something, I'm going to put a measure. Blood will be shed, but not yours, so that you are protected. The Israelites were set free. They went out of the land in which they'd been kept in captivity, from under the rule of Pharaoh, and they were sent out into freedom and act back towards the promised land, on towards their destiny. And you've got an oppressive, evil power that was thrown down. Okay? Pharaoh's power was broken and broken completely over the Israelites as we've seen before. And then the Israelites received riches. They plundered the Egyptians. You see them going along. Hi. Gold? Yes, thank you. Have that. Silver? Yep, thank you. We'll be taking that. Clothing? Yep, fine. Bronze? No, 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 no. We don't want just, just the good stuff. And you've got the Egyptians kind of going, yeah, here you go, because God made them favorably disposed towards the Israelites. It's amazing. He's brought about almost a complete switch because God can do that in an instant. And so that's just a few aspects of the Passover. And we're just going to go on from that to its kind of New Testament equivalent, which is the Last Supper and communion. Because the Bible really can be thought of um, in terms of a series of meals. You know that? Okay. Starts off with an apple being eaten in a garden, you know, through to the Passover meal. You know, later on, you've got the feeding of the 5,000, then on to the Last Supper. Peter has a revelation about eating bacon, and then we finish with the wedding supper of the Lamb. All right, it's a, a very easy progression. If that's one, just one how you memorize your biblical history in six easy meals, that's how we get it. And uh, Christian, food, food very important in Christianity, and we should never shy away from that. Uh, we do believe wholeheartedly in fasting, but we actually celebrate food as well. It's important. So, Matthew 26. That's 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'll just read verse 28 again. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When John the Baptist first described Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Bear in mind, this would have been within a Jewish context that he is describing Jesus. A Lamb who takes away sin. We don't always get the complete significance of that, but within a Jewish context, this was being hugely significant there because they knew their annual festival, the Passover, each year featured a lamb killed for their 
salvation, for their freedom, for their forgiveness, so that sin and death would pass over them. And now John is saying, here is a lamb with a much, much greater scope. On a worldwide, on a cosmic level, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I just want to draw a few parallels between the Passover and the crucifixion, between what God did for the Israelites and what he did for us. So the Israelites, their lives were spared by the blood of a lamb, whereas our lives are spared by the blood of the lamb. The Israelites were given freedom from slavery to Pharaoh. We are given freedom from slavery to sin and death. We are set completely and utterly free. Yes, be happy about that. You are. Good. I'm glad you are. The Israelites, Pharaoh was defeated. His power completely knocked down. His authority completely shattered. Whereas for us, Satan was defeated. Completely and utterly. His power over your life was completely broken. It is gone. He has no authority over you anymore because any claim that he ever had to you is completely and utterly broken by the victory of Christ. And the Israelites were given material wealth, gold, silver, clothing, You are granted eternal riches. You are granted all the riches of the kingdom, both in this life and now and forevermore through all eternity. You are granted the riches of knowing Christ and every blessing that he has is now yours. This is a good news. This is a good news. Okay? We want to celebrate the victory of the cross in the similar way that the Passover and the Exodus was God's utter triumph over Pharaoh in Egypt and the powers that they represented, the cross was the greatest victory in the history of the universe. The cross was not just a payment for a penalty. It was that, okay, but it did not merely meet the price for sin. It was the greatest act of forgiveness that the world has ever seen, but it is not just that, it is more than that. It was the greatest victory the world has ever seen. This was a triumph on a cosmic level, where the powers of darkness were thrown down, where Jesus Christ took the things that had kept humanity ensnared and ripped them apart. This is Christ victorious on a scale that can't ever be fully comprehended and which we will spend forever getting to the depths of and worshipping him in his courts. It's more than just forgiveness. And we absolutely, we celebrate that Jesus took the punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Forgiveness is wonderful, it's miraculous, and it's amazing, but there is more. Because, in actual fact, if you look in kind of the biblical definition, sin is not just a list of wrongdoings. Okay? The cross did not merely just scrub out a list of bad things that were against your name, because sin is a power that keeps people captive, and Jesus completely broke that power. Okay? And... Too many Christians live under the impression that they're, that they're basically the same as they were before they were saved, that they're just forgiven. That they've got the same flaws, they've, they've got the same temperament, that, that they are basically the same person, plodding along, not any different, with no more power or no more authority, 
but you just don't have to worry about going to hell anymore. And whilst, whilst that would still be a, a, a good deal of itself, okay, one should not uh, look a gift horse in the mouth, but uh, that is only part of the gospel. And actual fact, we need to be proclaiming the full gospel, which is actual fact that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and that you're in a new kingdom, and the old has gone, the new has come, and that you are set completely and abundantly free. Because sin is described as a power that held us captive, particularly a theme in the book of Romans. Um, We were slaves to sin, just like the Egyptians were slaves to Pharaoh. Jesus broke that power. Through the cross and the resurrection, he led his people out in triumphal procession. Just as Pharaoh had to watch as the people that he had wanted to keep captive forever paraded past out in front of him, plundering his kingdom... Satan had to watch on at the cross and the resurrection, knowing that his hold over us had been completely broken as the children of God walked out into their true destiny and their eternal riches. And God now calls on us to continue to plunder the kingdom of darkness and bring things into the kingdom of light. Because sin, as I say, it's not just a list of wrongdoings. This was a power that held people down, that ensnared and trapped people. But Jesus Christ stamped on that. He trampled that. That power is gone. This is great. This was recognized in the Old Testament. Micah 7, verse 18 to 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? That's the forgiveness part. That's amazing. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. God is merciful. It's amazing. But there's more. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. He is that power that was over you. He has crushed it. He has taken the influence of it. He has cast it so far away. You can't have it back. All right? You are not allowed that. You can't get it. All right? Now, the devil occasionally will come after you and say, I'm going to try and get you back into, you know, try and convince these people and you need to be slaves again. How did that work for Pharaoh? All right. <laughs> Pharaoh, after the, after the exodus, went, oh, I'm going to get those people back. Did that end well for him? No, no. Okay. Whenever Satan comes after you, it does not end well for him. All right. And the sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Because, in fact, this is by grace. You are not merely transferred from one kingdom of darkness into a new one where it then depends on your efforts and your righteousness. It depends on the righteousness of Christ. In actual fact, you live by grace, we live in freedom empowered by all the goodness that God gives us, and actual fact, you have the Holy Spirit. You have God himself inside you, giving you his presence that never leaves you, and his power that's always within you. Because actual fact, we have to be cautious sometimes in terms of how we, we see us, ourselves. And I tackled this a little bit in first service, and I'll just speak for a couple of minutes on it. And... Um, 
Whenever I, I kind of speak against what I perceive to be error, I never want to overreact to that. I always want to put it in context. But we have to be cautious about how we use the language about brokenness because you hear this going around in Christendom now and now where you'll get the kind of well-meaning phrase, I believe, and I believe these are people that are you know, generally wanting the best, but they're saying we're all just broken people following Jesus. And it's not true. <laughs> Because he fixed you. <laughs> That's the point. All right. <laughs> okay. So now th- I believe there is a brilliant intention there, which is saying that every single person, that before Jesus and of our own accord, all of us, uh, without exception, are completely broken, completely condemned, and completely hopeless. And they are saying that the door for anyone in that state, and that all of us who were in that state, is completely open, and that there is no one beyond redemption, and that the grace of God makes payment for all of that, however people are. That is completely true, and I celebrate that. But then you don't stay broken once you are saved because you are new, because you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and because you are free. You are a new creation. You're in a different kingdom. You are called to walk in wholeness and in the authority that Jesus gives you. And that's what he accomplished for you on the cross. And it is glorious. The scope of that that the cross not only brought forgiveness and a complete um, washing away of all of our sins, it brought freedom from any power of sin, and it brought freedom to follow Jesus in victory into his kingdom. I love the, uh, the song that we were singing earlier. Um, if we're able to get the lyrics up from Ain't No Grave, if we've got that facility, from the, there's the, the line, there was a battle. Smashing, thank you. I commented in first service. I loved this song. It was a bit like a worship song that was written by Johnny Cash. That's just. <laughs> I think it should be in a new genre of, of music, which we could call Hallelujah. <laughs> it's great. Love a bit of country. Um, love Johnny Cash as well. Big fan. Um, anyway, here we go. There was a battle, a war between death and life. There on a tree, the Lamb of God was crucified. He went on down to hell. He took back every key. He rose up as a lion. Now he's setting all the captives free. And if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? No, you don't sound convinced. We had to do this again first time. I'm going to try that. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen? Amen. Fantastic. Isn't... Jesus, amazing. Okay? We want to point all the glory, all the honor to Jesus Christ, Christ victorious, who won our battle, who won the ultimate battle. He won it for us. He won it for all of his creation. He is redeeming the entire world. And when we come to take communion, we want to do that joyfully and in celebration and in thankfulness of all that he has done for us. And we're going to do that in a moment. Um, I'll tell us how we do that and I'll pray for us. But yeah, when you come there, in fact, we are celebrating Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, and that victory that he won that has set you free and you are completely and utterly free. Just with communion, I'll do this in a moment. 
We've um, got tables with bread, wine at the four corners of the room. Gluten-free bread is at the back corner, I believe, um, so for people that need that. Um, just come and take that in just yourself or with family, friends, people sitting near you. Um, our policy on this generally is that we believe that this is open to all believers any time that they want to. Please don't wait around there waiting for someone to come and serve you communion because I won't be doing that because you don't need me. All right? This is actually really important. You go take that yourself because all of us, in fact, have the same access to Jesus. Right? This isn't the only context in which you can take communion. I would encourage you to take communion in your own homes, in your families, friends, small groups, worship times, but it's actually great to be able to do this as a family together at Eastgate and to be able to come in thankfulness and worship. So um, I'd also say I would encourage uh, parents, if you've got um, children either in youth or in our children's ministry, um, please go and get them and bring them back up to join you. Um, and in actual fact, to share that with you. Um, feel free to share communion with more than one, more than one person. Um, this was, my dad said this earlier, I saw you wandering off going, oh, I'm going to share this with more than one people, because you can. Um, all right? Don't feel limited in that way. All right? But we're just going to come, we are going to come in joyful, humble celebration and thankfulness to Jesus. We stand, I'll pray, and then we'll take the communion. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of you. We love you. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the God of the whole universe. Praise you, Jesus, that through your death and your resurrection, you paid the price for all of us, you redeemed us, and you set us completely free. We celebrate your victory, that the powers of sin and darkness were cast down forever and that we get to live in the victory that you have won. We just delight in honoring you and in joining with you for the extent of your kingdom. Bless you, Jesus. Amen. Bless you. Enjoy communion.